Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. You know Mary Louise Kelly as the smart, insightful, tough co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. She's reported from Iran, North Korea, Ukraine, Pakistan, and elsewhere, bringing urgent stories from around the world closer to home for listeners in the U.S. And she's done all that while also raising two boys, one of whom is soon off to college. And until recently, she always thought she'd have time later to make good on promises to her boys. But in her new book, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs, Mary Louise faces a reckoning that there are no more years ahead. Just, quote, months, weeks, and minutes. So she asks herself, what would she do if she had to decide all over again? I recently sat down with Mary Louise Kelly in front of a live audience at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And today, we're sharing that conversation with you. So Mary Louise, I actually want to start with a story that you start with early in the book about that Black Hawk helicopter and the phone call you got. Can you tell us that story? Yes, this was um, when my kids were four and six and I was working as NPR's Pentagon correspondent. And on this trip, um, we had flown in, there was a big sandstorm and I remember landing in Baghdad and there was a swarm of Black Hawk helicopters to take us on to the first meetings of the day. And so we're inside the green zone, but even there you're wearing full body armor and helmet and everything and um, about to board the helicopters and my phone rings and it is, the school nurse back in Washington calling to tell me that my four-year-old is sick and can I come? Like, where am I? And I I think my reaction was like, lady, you know, it's not, not happening if you can see where I am. And she started speaking more loudly and said, I don't mean to bring him home. I mean, he's really sick. He's struggling to breathe. Where are you? We need to get him to a hospital. But I have to get into this helicopter, and as soon as we take off, I lose signal. And I do remember being up in the air and looking down and thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life? Why mm-hmm. am I here? So maybe career plan B is in order. And I, um, on the way home from that trip, started writing what became my first book. And walked away from the newsroom, like not as a leave or a sabbatical, but flat out quit and spent um, five or six years out away from the newsroom writing, trying to keep my foot in the door a little bit, but choosing a very different path. 
Um, you used the word choice just then, and I wanted to start with this story because I think it's an example of how women don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Because several years ago, after your first novel came out, you actually came and did an interview at WBUR, and you spoke with my colleague Anthony Brooks at the time. I remember why. And I remember you telling this story. And what hit me at that time was the school had called you. And I don't know if there are phone- two parents listed uh, in that yeah, directory. I don't know, it's I don't usually know if the your moms phone number was the, the first call. on the call list, but the school had called you. Uh, so in a sense, you were feeling this guilt for not being able to be there instantaneously and respond to the urgent needs of your son, but you were put in that impossible position. They didn't call your husband first. There was a presumption that mom is the first call. Yep, moms are the default. I will say they called my husband next after it became clear I was not gonna answer the phone. And he got there and all was fine and my son is now a thriving, happy 17-year-old. It is true that the demands on mothers are just different. They just flat out are, that from the biological facts at the beginning of it, um, that we're the ones giving birth, and if we choose and are able to, doing the breastfeeding and all the rest. On the other hand, I was able to step away. I mean, I was working, I was writing, but I was able to step away and spend my mornings on the playground, and that was praised by our society, and there was space for me to do that, and there was support for me to do that, and in some ways, I, I wonder if women of our generation are fortunate and that we do have choices. There are still, and this is really, really frustrating, only 24 hours in a day, despite my best efforts. So you cannot be in the Black Hawk helicopter and on the playground, or as the case may be, in the emergency room all at the same time. It doesn't happen. But I will say I have been surprised since this book published and I've been doing interviews, I have gotten at least 50% of the people who've written or tweeted or called or emailed have been men hmm. saying, hey, we, we're wrestling with this too. And the last thing I will say on that is I was, um, I was picking up my younger son from soccer practice last week, story of my life, and one of his friends walked past my car and waved and said hi and stopped for a moment. This is a 17-year-old teenage soccer jock. And he said, hi, Mrs. Kelly, nice to see you. I know your book's coming out. I'm really looking forward to reading it because I think it's really going to resonate. And I was like, <laughs> really? <laughs> the emotional turmoil of a middle-aged mom is hitting home for you? Like, I mean, I didn't say that, but I must have had a look on my face because he said, yeah, because you're writing about choices that we make and years of no do-overs and the end of high school, yeah. and I'm kind of living that too. And I thought, yeah, yeah you are. So you're going to have to forgive me because I'm going to model myself after Mary Louise Kelly and not quite let go of this point just yet, okay? As long as you don't do a map test, no map test. I'm not saying that you're you're the Secretary of State here um, at all. But but there's another another scene in the book where you're, I believe, in the Dawn bus, and you're talking about how, you know, you're in this war zone and you're obviously sending a lot of messages back to the newsroom and doing your job. Um, But at the same time, your duties as a mother are still front and center and very present, right? Like, I think you tell a story about you having to send a text to your son reminding reminding him about the the dog. The doggy daycare grooming appointment. I was literally texting the dog groomer from the Don Boss. Like, you know, can you make sure to trip his nails while you're at it? Yeah. So the reason why... bring that up, and you can tell me that I'm just on the wrong track, but 
have you ever witnessed any of your male colleagues having to do that? <sighs> like as Pentagon correspondent, every military plane I've ever been on, the men are passing around photos. Are they organizing carpool and figuring out what's for dinner from Baghdad or from Eastern Ukraine? I have not seen that. <laughs> you know, when I was earlier in my career and my kids were really little, I felt so self-conscious about being mommy-tracked or seen as being less ambitious or less hardworking if I asked for any kind of accommodation. And so I did, you know, I would be needing to take one of my children to the pediatrician or the orthodontist or whatever it was, and I would tell my bosses I'm gonna be a couple hours late because there's a doctor's appointment. Not quite making clear whose doctor's appointment. And I now, and it's partly I'm more senior in my career, but I also think, this is part of life, and I'm gonna put, we have a, a calendar that there's, you know, I have my personal calendar where I'm keeping track of my own dentist appointments, but there's a, those are actually on a big calendar that dozens of people can see. I go out of my way to say, you know, taking, you know, <laughs> teenager to pediatrician or whatever it is, because um, I want that to be public and out there and model it for, you know, the 20, 30 something colleagues who are coming up behind me to show like, you gotta ask for this and it needs to be respected and this is how we do it. And I go out of my way, if I don't see the men doing it, to say like, you you know, you know, need to put your daycare obligation on that calendar and they're like, oh, my wife's got that. I'm like, okay, now we're having, now we're gonna talk because <laughs> yeah. that needs to be on your calendar too. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I bring this up is because, um, look, the book is a beautiful reflection, a self-exploration, a reckoning as, as you call it. But as I was reading it, I just couldn't let go of this feeling of, well, Mary Louise Kelly feels like she has to go through this reckoning because of choices that she believes she made. But I don't think she had a choice a lot of the time, right? Like, it's not that much of a, most people wouldn't even blink until someone like you writes it down that here's a mom, top of her game, as a foreign correspondent who still has to like text back about doggy daycare. That's not a choice, I don't think. I mean, oh, and, that's life. That's life, isn't well, it? Well, what I'm saying is I mean, is I could choose not be. to have a Bernadoodle and that's a different conversation because <laughs> we can go there. Well, I guess what the, the what's, yeah. you're not making the choice. We have a society right now yeah. that prevents you from, you and women like you for perhaps making other choices that you might have wanted to make. Well, and I think, and what I was trying to reckon with was I have laid down for myself a few hard, bright lines in trying to be, I hope, a good mom and I hope good at my job. One of them is when the job and the kids collide, the kids come first. You know, I have stood up from Studio 31, which is our main broadcast studio at NPR headquarters, in the middle of a live national broadcast of all things considered and like, looked at Ari Shapiro and said I gotta go and he's like what we're, like what we're on air I'm like I know but I'm looking at the text coming in from the babysitter and it starts with I'm in the emergency room and I gotta go um, and to his credit he's like okay you go go the ones that I have had to wrestle with that I think all of us maybe wrestle with are the I call it the vast gray space that accumulates and it's the it's the everyday little things. And what prompted me to start thinking about writing the book was 
this very specific decision that I had made over and over. My sons um, love soccer, like love soccer. Um, my oldest, James, he last year was the starting striker um, on his high school varsity team in Washington. And their games, which he lived for, are weekdays at four o'clock. And I have a conflict weekdays at four o'clock. A little bit. (laughs) And it's not the kind of job where you can just slink away early and hope no one will notice. And so I missed his games, like all of them. And I kept thinking, next year I'm gonna figure this out. Next year I'll find a way. And ninth grade slides into 10th, as the parents here know, which slides into 11th. And suddenly your kid is a senior and you're out of next year's. And the games that seemed, you know, who cares if you miss one when there are zillions, and suddenly you can count on your own two hands how many are left. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to show up, i got to figure this out. And those are the decisions where you say you have no choice, but you do. I mean, I had a choice. It wasn't an easy one, but I stepped away from the show for um, six, seven weeks last year. And now I'm trying to figure out if I do it again because my younger one's about to be a senior. So we'll see. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a quick note here on something we're working on for later this week, because as you know, on May 11th, the Biden administration ends the COVID national emergency declaration. So we want to know what you think about that. Lessons learned from the pandemic, how it's changed your life. And can we do better as a nation when the next pandemic hits? What will that take? Send us a message on the On Point Vox Pop app. You can look for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. Or call us at 617-353-0683. That's for later this week. We're going to be talking about the pandemic and the end of the COVID declarations. Today, we're sharing a conversation I had recently with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly about her book, It Goes So Fast. We spoke before a live audience at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I asked Mary Louise to tell us more about that reckoning she was going through about the choices she'd made as a mother. Did her sons ever ask her why she was away for work often when they were little? And she told us that she asked her boys that very question when she was writing the new book. And we'll let Mary Louise pick up the story from there. And at one point, I cornered James in the hallway outside his room and said, has there ever been a moment where you really needed me and I didn't come because I was working? 
And he looked at me, and then he looked down for a long, like a really uncomfortably long time, and I thought, oh God, he's about to really let me have it. And he looked back up and said, there probably was, but I can't actually remember, and could I have 15 bucks for Chipotle? (laughs) (laughs) I just thought, okay. Whatever mistakes I have made as a mom, and my kids would tell you, I have made plenty. If the only restitution reparations that needed to be made <laughs> 15 was 15 bucks for Chipotle, like, we're doing okay here. He's fine, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm actually really glad you said that, because that's something that I had been wondering as your sons were, were growing up. I mean, did either of them ever say, like, why are you gone so often? Or, you know, when, I mean, especially when you're doing a lot of intense foreign reporting. To be completely honest, no, they never seem to miss me. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe they didn't tell you. I'm pretty sure they probably did. You know, I I think part of this has been my realizing it's, this is about me. This Mm. is about my missing things and knowing they're not coming around again. Like my kids, as long as there were warm brownies after school, I don't think they cared if the babysitter had made them or I, like, it was me who missed those moments. I will say the questions have gotten really interesting as they've gotten older because I have always believed in being pretty honest with them about what I do and where I'm going and um, as they've asked questions, I think if a kid is old enough to ask questions, they deserve an answer. Mm -hmm. So they know, you know, when I have gone to Iraq or Afghanistan or North Korea or wherever. My, my conversation before going to Ukraine last year with James, the oldest one, he had just watched Argo about the, you know, the hostage crisis in Iran, which is not a good movie for your teenager to watch if you are going to be traveling to Iran, as I have. Um, so he wanted to know all about what's the exit strategy. And that was a really interesting conversation because the exit strategy from a war zone is not really clear. Yeah. <laughs> The exit strategy is you're going to have done hostile environment training before you go in. You're going to be very careful about where you go. I do not take unnecessary risks, but, you know, I got on a plane to Ukraine, so that's the bar we're starting with. I was packing body armor to go, so, you know, my definition of unnecessary risks might not track with other mothers, and I get that. Um, But those conversations have gotten very interesting as the boys have wanted to engage on where I'm going and why. Well, I'm going to trust that your sons also know what a badass their mom is. Um, (laughs) But there's a story that you tell in the book that, gosh, just really put my heart in my throat. And I I also think it sort of puts your thought process about, you know, those gray areas, as you were talking about, in a totally different context. And that is about, it surrounds the birth of your younger son and a document that you found later. Can you tell us that story? Alexander, my healthy, thriving 17-year-old, was a perfectly normal pregnancy uh, until the last, until he was delivered by emergency cesarean section two weeks early. And it was a very challenging delivery even by emergency C-section standards. And I, at some point, I never got anesthesia, but at some point had passed out, I think, from the horror of it. And so I have no direct memory of his birth and knew that he was very sick. And that was very obvious. He was whisked to the NICU and um, we weren't allowed to take him home for a long time. I was very sick afterward. 
So those first few weeks were really difficult. And I knew that, and we knew he had had a stroke. And we were focused on trying to get him out of the NICU and get him home and address whatever had happened with the stroke and needed to be, you know, whatever was treatable. And making all the follow-up appointments and deal with his two-year-old brother and all the rest. Um, and did I mention we were moving house and had nowhere to live and were living in a hotel? And it was, just, it was, there was a lot. So when we finally were able to pick him up from the NICU, they handed us this fat envelope of discharge papers, which I took home and threw in a drawer because we had plenty going on. And it must have sat there for 15, 16 years, unopened. And it was only when I was trying to write a chapter for this book about something else in his childhood and was going to check my memory to see like, if I could find paperwork from the pediatrician that I found this envelope at the very front, the first document in his medical file. And I thought, well, I'll open that. And clearly it can't be, I mean, we've lived this long without knowing whatever's in there. I'll, you know, give it a quick look and check it. And I read, and I had not realized no one had ever told me, and I, I don't know that my husband was ever told, um, that he had been born not alive. He had an APGAR score of zero, which it's a score used to measure the health of a newborn, and it's measuring you know, respiration and color and reflexes, and you want a 10, a perfect score is 10, and my son was a zero and he was a zero for several minutes. I don't know how many after birth. Um, and it's hard to talk about even now, even knowing the outcome, that he's fine. I mean, I know how this story ends, he's fine. But I think it caused me to go back and think about some of the choices I had made. I traveled when he was a baby. I traveled, I went to Pakistan for two weeks before he could walk. And thinking, would I have made those choices? Like, would I ever have let him out of my arms if I had known how close I had came to losing him? And the answer to that is complicated. Partly, you don't have a choice. He's crawling out of your lap whether you try to hold him close or not, mm -hmm. and that's what you want. And partly because I love what I do, and I feel being a journalist in my bones, and that was an important story, and I'm glad I got on the plane. I don't regret it, but if you... If you tweak that question just a little bit, no, I don't regret it. I don't regret getting on the plane. Do I regret leaving my baby? Yeah, yeah. I do. And I have every time, and I still do. I still, like, um, the last big international trip I did was in February to Iran. And that moment of turning the key and the lock and walking out and down the steps to get into a taxi and go to the airport to a series of planes that's gonna take you thousands of miles away. I every single time have a moment where I think, can we just call this off? Can I just go back inside, order pizza, build a pillow fort, watch a movie? But I think that those two things can both be true. You can want to do the job that mm -hmm. you have worked hard to do um, and find meaning and purpose in, and you can also wanna stay home and build a pillow fort every, yeah. every single night. You know, I cannot imagine what that moment was like when you first read that medical report. I mean, did you, did you feel like bodily almost thrust back to that time? Yeah, yeah. You know, again, we knew he'd had a stroke. Yeah. 
We spent his first year in a series of children's hospitals appointment trying to figure out what had happened. Like, did did the stroke cause the difficult delivery? Because the emergency C-section was because they lost his heartbeat. Um, his heart was not beating, and that was for a while before they got him out, and then another several minutes at least um, after he was delivered. Did that cause the stroke? And I've never had... I never got an answer to that. Nobody could ever answer that. It felt relevant for a long time, you know, on his medical forms. Is there any prior medical history? I'm like, <laughs> how much time have you got? Um, but over the years, as he thrived and got bigger and stronger, um, this is the same child who I got the phone call in Baghdad about, which informed part of my particular reaction in that situation. As he got older, I started thinking, does his camp counselor, who's about to teach him how to like build a campfire and paddle a canoe, do they need to know this? Because he's seven and he's fine. Mm. And um, yeah. Well, you said a little earlier that this book is really more about you and your reckoning as a mother and professional journalist. And that story in particular made me feel full of gratitude for you because it sounds, I mean, I hope I'm interpreting this correctly. Your answer about you like, can't go back and change the past. You still have, you know, you might ask yourself a question or two about would you have done something differently. But the way you approach it, I feel like you're allowing yourself grace in even in the in the face of this like sort of new, very earth-shaking information. And I take that as an example. Like one thing that the book so clearly says, I think, is that parents need to allow, to, need to give themselves a little bit of grace, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're all trying. Yeah. <laughs> Not a single one of us has figured this out. I've been asked a couple times, so what's the takeaway? Like, yeah, so what's, what's your the answer? Exactly. I'm like, hell if I know. Like, <laughs> I, and if you figured it out, hats off, and please write the next book and tell me. Um, there's so many different ways to be a journalist. You know, there are people who write amazing op-eds, there are people who go on cable TV news, there's people, there's all these different, you know, paths. I'm a reporter at heart. I'm in the anchor chair now, but it's because I'm, I like to ask questions. And I'm so curious, and I feel way more comfortable asking the questions than answering them. So that's the way I've always approached my career. And in writing the book, I think I kind of knew, like, there isn't an answer to this. Yeah. You can't be in two places at once. But I'm going to turn some of these questions on myself and interrogate myself and the, the deals I've cut with myself and the trade-offs I've made that have gotten our family to this point and um, do so in as honest mm-hmm. and unflinching a way as I can. And I'm going to apply that to myself. And that's yeah. kind of what became the backbone yeah. here. So a lot of the interviews that you've done for this book really focus on, of course, like you as a mother. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was in this year of no do-overs, about the, uh, another major relationship in your life, and that is with your father. Because he passed away, right? Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank you. His name was Jim Kelly, and he, fought cancer for 17 years. He was diagnosed with stage four cancer and he lived for another 17, which tells you a little bit about this man who would not quit. 
Um, and as you know, part of the exercise of writing a book that touches on being a mother, you're thinking about what do you pass down? What are they gonna remember of anything I've been telling them? Like what lessons are they learning from watching me or not watching me? I don't know if they're taking any of this in, but it makes you think about, well, what did you inherit that came down from there? And I see my father and my sons mm. all the time in ways genetic. My older son looks very like him, is built like him, has the same insane sense of humor. Um, like watching the two of them watch a movie together was just the greatest thing ever. They just, their laughter, and it was way more entertaining than whatever was on the screen. So I see that. Um, and I've thought about what I what I took from him, from my father. One of them was just that he, he never gives up, for better or worse, in ways like it's so frustrating to deal with such a stubborn person, and I see that in myself. Um, he was a runner. He taught me to run. It's where I wrote half the book, was go out for a run, and the ideas come, and I would put them down on the page. But yeah, as I was thinking about the decisions I've made with my children, I was talking with my father what was clearly the end of his life and um, I think one of the you know I write about what was the very last walk I went on with him you don't always know when something's happening for the last time but with my father it was clear he was very very sick and he asked to go for a walk and my mother looked at us like are you kidding me like it's like that's not a good idea, stay with him. And we went for a walk and he fell and I helped him back up and we walked a little bit more and he fell again and took him longer to get up. And the conversation we were having was he was telling me, you know, the things he thought I should know. And it was family comes first. You need to look after your boys. They're such good boys. And then <laughs> he said, do you think they need to learn more about carpentry? And I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, I have some wood in the garage back in Atlanta. I grew up in Georgia. I have some wood in the garage. Maybe I could teach them. I think it's really important for them to learn how to use power tools. Okay. And then he went on a, a quite long and vivid description. This is from the ground. He's on the pine straw. And I'm trying, I'm looking at him. You can see like he's just gray with pain. And he's going through this litany of the power tools that my kids need to learn how to use. And I, I looked at him and thought, the love of a parent is so strong. And I only understand this now that I'm a mother. But what you're saying to me, you're talking about power tools. And what you're saying is, I love you. Um, I appreciate very much that you shared that story because it's uh, I lost my father last year too and I'm um, sorry thank you it it's um, <clears throat> just resonated very powerfully with me because we talk about ourselves as parents to our children but of course we are children to our parents and the sort of reflection and processing and wondering what are we past it what did we learn about being parents what effect did they have on us what are we passing down i mean it, it can become quite quite overwhelming but what you just said is is the thing that pulls that pulled me through right that ultimately no matter what choices we made they were made out of love right love. 
Yeah. Yeah. And if your children one of these days can see that, then we've done all right. Yeah. Yeah. There's more with Mary Louise Kelly after the break. Stay with us. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And now, the final part of my live conversation with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly, held recently at the Brattle Theatre in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Audience members were eager to ask Mary Louise their own questions, so I turned the microphone over to them. My question for you is, you've talked about what the reckoning that you've gone through in having your job and being a mother and I wondered the part of the reckoning that has to do with the danger, the dangerous part of your job, not just that your job takes you away and how that's fit in to your, to your reckoning. Thank you. I mean, I will say I am I'm not a war correspondent. I've never been based in, I've never been our Baghdad bureau chief or our Kabul bureau chief, and that is by design. Um, because while that's a career path I might have considered um, before I became a mother, it wasn't viable once I once I did become a mother, nor was it frankly what I wanted to do. Part of my reckoning, so I, I mentioned going to Ukraine last year. I was there in early February, right before the start of the war. I have not been back. My editors have asked me to go back. Um, it was a... a conversation I really wrestled with um, around this time last year, maybe April. Yeah, late April, early May last year, where my editors were asking, could I go back for another rotation? And every bone in my journalist body wanted to get on that plane. And the weeks that they wanted lined up with James's last weeks of high school. 
and um, prom and final exams, like final, final exams. And another of my hard kind of bright lines has been there are a lot of journalists who can cover the war in Ukraine and that sadly there will always be a war sometime, somewhere. And nobody else can be a mom to that kid. And those weeks mattered and I said no. And um, I haven't been back since. Go ahead, please. Hi. Uh, thank you and good evening. Uh, you, you, you mentioned the extrication question from one of your sons. But well, I'm curious to know whether they take for granted the fact that you're going all these places or whether they quiz you when you return, uh, you know, whether they want stories, uh, you know, from the front line. The lovely thing about teenage children, teenage boys in my case, is <laughs> they look at me and they see mom. Yeah. And that's what they need to see. They're very, very good at keeping you grounded. They do, as I say, have questions. Um, but they and they are tremendously helpful. I will. I don't get scared interviewing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. That's what I do. I, that's I'm a policy wonk. That's my sweet spot. But interviews about the NFL are absolutely terrifying <laughs> to me because I do not understand it, and I can read all the articles and prepare them. Like I still I don't understand like that, you know. And I'll call my teenage son and be like, quick. Like, what are your three questions? And they'll far end up, you will hear them coming verbatim out of my mouth <laughs> an hour later. <laughs> and those they love, and they'll ask me how it goes. So, yeah. yeah. You know what I think will happen? First of all, you're exactly right. They're, they're teenage boys, and, and they sh you are mom first, right? And kids keeping us grounded is absolutely the truth and very, very essential. But my guess is that in the future, they're gonna look back and, you know, maybe one day they'll encounter, they'll be flipping through their phones and they'll encounter a picture of you doing your work from somewhere. And the mom that worked in those dangerous, you know, reporting assignments or that spoke every f afternoon to 20 million people, that mom, they'll have a renewed, well, maybe a first appreciation A first for. appreciation. Yeah. Right, because I, be nice. we do that as adults for our, yeah. for, for our parents because we see them as mom and dad first, but it's only when we become adults that we're like, oh, and they were people too. Yeah, who knew? Right, Shocker. so that's my prediction, okay? And if not, tell them to call me. Um, go ahead, please, sir. Thank you, thank you both for being here and for being examples of really strong women in a business. Yeah, so, round of applause. So. Mary, I heard your interview the other day with Terry Gross when you were talking about, uh, she was asking you about your interview with Mike Pompeo. And to me, talk about a profile in journalistic courage, that abusive exchange that you had with him. What I'm curious to know is, it's a two-parter. So first of all, how did you maintain your calm, your groundedness in what was clearly a misogynistic moment? And then secondly, what did you learn about yourself as a person from having to deal with that situation with that kind of power asymmetry? The how do you keep your cool question is just, I'm there to do a job. I'm there to ask questions. They were good questions, if I may say. They were questions that needed to be asked. And I always feel in those moments, you know, 
it's my mouth opening and asking the questions, but I'm doing it on behalf of all of you. And I'm not saying that with false humility. It's a huge privilege to get to question someone like that. And it's not like Mike Pompeo or any other Secretary of State owes me any answers. Um, I would actually say that they do. He, oh, well. I, because they owe answers to the American people, but exactly. go on. And, but that's my point, is he, owe, he owes you know, anybody who's working at, at the, you know, collecting a salary from the US government, um, funded by us, the taxpayers, um, should be accountable for decisions that are being made, and owes answers to the American public, and also owes diplomats, in that case, to all the uh, answers to all the diplomats who worked for him, who are not gonna be able to question their boss and say, what's going on with the shadow foreign policy and what the Senate is in the middle of an impeachment trial for the President of the United States over things to do with Ukraine and you're running Ukraine policy, Mike Pompeo, so what's the deal? Um, I keep my cool partly understanding that's who, I'm at, uh, that's who I'm there for. I will also say, as I sat in his private, uh, well we were standing actually, but as I stood in his private living room and he's swearing at me, um, I, I had one of those little moments where you're circling above yourself looking down because I had just been in Iran like right before that, that same month of January 2020 and was thinking, aren't I lucky to live in a country that enjoys the First Amendment and a constitutional protection of free press and free speech? Because I have just been in a country and I've reported from a few where getting into a contentious interview with a senior government official um, who's calling you a liar would land you in jail or worse. And that's not gonna, whatever else happens, that's not gonna happen here. Um, so that's the answer to that part. What did I learn about myself? I mean, I take this on a little bit in the book because I was thinking about how to talk about it with my children and what lessons I wanted them to take from it. Um, one was about standing your ground and not giving up. And in the context of an interview like that, that means if you ask a question and someone doesn't answer it, you keep asking. Um, it was, you know, another takeaway, I guess, for me is the importance sometimes of standing up to a bully. Yeah. And um, I, I didn't have anything in my life that had prepared me for being in a situation like that being sworn out by one of the most powerful people in the world, um, watching you know, from my TV and back in the newsroom a couple days later as the President of the United States at the White House praised Pompeo for doing a good job on me. Um, how do I explain that? And what possible training do I have for this? And then I thought, um, I do have training for this. I have been the mother of a toddler <laughs> and, and you are dealing with another one. In some cases, when a person is behaving unreasonably, the best response is not to dignify it with a response. Please, next question. Hi, um, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us tonight, more than anything else. I'm going to ask a question to the mom of the toddlers there. What would you say to us moms who stayed at home, made a decision to not follow our careers until later, and am still experiencing extreme regret 
in pain at becoming an empty nester recently, a mother of four boys. And I don't have a do-over, and I want a do-over. Um, so is there anything in this book that I'm going to read that's going to speak to my heart in that way? Oh, I thank you so much for the question. I think I would say, and I can only speak for myself, my experience has been, you can't have it all and all at once. We all make our choices. I hope that you, I hope that you made the one that was right for you and for your family and that that gives you satisfaction and joy. I hope that your four boys adore their mama and <laughs> like, that you're so proud of those years because you should be. I have cycled in and cycled out and done every permutation from flat out work crazy around the clock schedule to not working outside the home at all to four day weeks to sabbatical. I've done all over the map and none of them are easy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, you cannot have it all and all at once. But I would say to you, who says you're done? Like, what is your dream? Yeah. What's your dream? Not the dream that when you were 20 or 25 or whenever you started all this, but what's your dream now? And maybe that is still being a, a fully engaged mom, grandmom. If so, like, I'm so proud of you and that's great. And, and have Thank permission you. to enjoy Thank that. You. But if it's something else, like, go get them. <laughs> go get them. Why not? Go ahead, please. Um, so I don't ask questions for a living, so I'm going to do my best. Um, so I relate very much to where you are kind of in your parenting journey. I have three boys. My oldest went to college last year. I have two more rounding the bend. I work full time with a job I love, though it's frustrating sometimes, but I love it. Um, and I, I do feel this sense of it goes so fast. Like I get it and I love this idea of reckoning because I think that is true and you make decisions and you live with your decisions. What's next? And kind of how are you thinking about that time after the kids are Oof. moving on? Because it's yeah. not gone, but moving away. Yeah. Well, and the and a part of what I wanted to do in writing it was was to really reckon with it in real time because my day job, the day job that we do, I love what I do. I, I hope that's clear. I find it meaningful. I find it energizing and I, and I love getting up and doing it every day, but it's so ephemeral. I do a show and you can, you know, you get days where it all goes great and every interview request comes back yes and you have great conversations and you come up with the perfect question, you know, um, out of thin air in real time and it's this masterpiece of a show and by two weeks later you've forgotten all about it because the news cycle marches on and you have to keep getting up and redoing it every day. And I do like that, the clean slate every day. However, if you live life like that, and I know I do, the tendency to do the to-do lists and race through them is real, um, you don't kind of sit and just think, okay, it, it is all these little choices that are adding up. Um, that are adding up to the life that I have chosen. And I don't know, I don't know if you want to add to that. I, I 
I have not figured it out. But of turning the questions around on myself has been has been a fascinating experience, and I feel so lucky to have done it, and I guess lucky to have to have shared it all with you tonight. Thank you. A reason why I didn't have anything to add to that is, first of all, I just love watching you think. <laughs> we get to hear her think every day, but I, just watching you think is quite a thrill. Um, but I was thinking about something you had just said that what you what we may want at any particular time is different than what we might want later. So that's yeah. why I, was, I think the what next question is quite hard to answer, yeah. right? Because it yeah. seems like you know for the next two years you know what you want, but again, two years from now that it'll, it'll be it, yeah. it will probably be di be yeah. different, and that's that sort of ebb and flow and evolution yeah. of ourselves as as individuals and as parents is also one of the yeah. things I think that just resonates. well. And I start and end the book. I mean, I was just talking about two-year increments. I I have also kind of while writing the book started thinking about life as a play, appropriate in a theater, and that for me, Act One was youth. It was like, you know, school and college and first job and meeting the man I would marry and getting married, and buying a house and buying a car. All of that was act one because then act two was having kids, which kind of wiped out everything else and was a very exhausting act um, where no one got a lot of sleep, but was really fun. And now I feel like, I mean, I will always be a mom, but with the kind of end of childhood encroaching that I'm staring down act three and those questions of the what now, what next, what characters do I want on the stage for this one? Yeah. Um, who do I want to be spending my time with? What do I want the action to be? I don't know the answer yet, but that's the question. Well, all I can say is thank you so much for sharing this portion of your journey with us in the book. And I know I speak for everyone here and that we will be with you every step of the way, every day as you continue on your journey, you know, professionally as um, a set of ears and a mind and a voice for all of us who listen to you um, on the radio. So Mary Louise Kelly, I can't thank you enough for the book and for the I work gotcha. you do every day. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Mary Louise Kelly in conversation with me at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She is the award-winning co-host of NPR's All Things Considered, and her new book is It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. Now, we've had other great conversations around the reckoning we go through regarding the fundamental relationships that shape our lives. For example, there was my conversation with Achut Deng, whose American-born sons never knew much about the fact that their mother was a war refugee until she decided not to hide their history from them anymore. That's in our podcast feed. So subscribe to the On Point podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.